This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Should PC leader Patrick Brown apologize for his comments that he made in regard to Kathleen Wynne? Uh, the Premier has decided to sue Patrick Brown for defamation over comments uh, made before her testimony as a witness in the Election Act bribery trial in Sudbury. He made reference to her standing trial, and that was not the case. She was asked to uh, to be a witness. She was called to testify. She wasn't, tr- she wasn't uh, standing trial. Uh, she wasn't uh, on trial for these charges. Uh, so really, at the end of the day, I agree that he should uh, do the right thing because people are just sick and tired of this sort of crap and the spin and the and the fake. It's you know, it's it's either one extreme or the other. It, it, it seems uh, that being said, it's not very often I side with our premier. But here's what she had to say. This whole situation could be resolved with a simple apology if uh, Patrick Brown just apologized for what um, everyone has acknowledged was a was an untrue statement. It could be brought to a very expeditious uh, end, um, but in the absence of that, then um, we are just simply moving forward in order to uh, in order to be able to uh, to continue the process. Uh, Christo Avalis is joining us, Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council postdoctoral fellow in History, University of Toronto, is on the line with us now. Christo, thanks for taking the time. As always, we greatly appreciate this. Yeah, thanks for having me. So what are your thoughts on this? Uh, it, it should uh, Well, first of all, uh, do you think she has a case here? You know, I, I think she probably does. And obviously, whenever you go into courts, you can never be 100% sure. And, you know, I'm not a lawyer. If, I'm not a judge. Uh, you know, so I can't answer a certainty. But, you know, reading over the transcripts, you know, the Toronto Star gave coverage, it seems like, you know, he made kind of two key statements. Um, that I think, you know, our one was probably okay, maybe, at least plausible deniability, and then one wasn't, where you said, you know, the premier is at trial. And I guess in saying she's at trial, you know, you could argue that, you know, she was attending a trial in the capacity as, a, as someone testifying. But then he said that, you know, the premier is on trial. And that, again, goes to what you said in your introduction, that the premier was not on trial. You know, some of her staff was on trial. Her party's decisions were on trial, you know, um, but she was not on trial. And I think, you know, we've spoken about this before, that in many ways, you know, Premier Wynne is, is on trial on this issue from a kind of political, you know, ethical sense. And that the voters, you know, come from 2018 might hold her to account in a sense for this trial, even though, there, you know, there was no, there was no guilty verdict, of course. Um, but, you know, innocence in court is, you know, is not innocence in the public. But there, when Patrick Brown said she was on trial, um, he crossed the line in that sense. And, you know, whether he should apologize, I mean, I can't answer that question for him. But it does seem like it was an untrue statement. Uh, do you think the average Ontarian will get that? Do you think the average Ontarian looks at this and says, you know what, uh, that's right, that's wrong? I mean, I'm not sure. I think if you, if you talk to most Ontarians and you explained it to them, you gave them the things to read, they'd probably form an opinion. I think most people would realize that, that, you know, this is probably an incorrect statement and that it's probably something he should apologize for. But, they, you know, they might see it as maybe more of a flub when you said at trial and on trial. Maybe he meant to say... So why not say that? Why not just clear it up and move on? Like, you know, I mean, it just seems petty. And I think people are tired of petty. 
Yeah, I think, you know, if he was able to say, look, you know, apologies to the Premier, what I meant to Claire, you know, I, I didn't mean to apply in a, in a legal sense that she was on trial, but, but I do feel that the actions of this government, you know, are, will be on trial with the, uh, you know, average Ontario voter, and that's what I'm more concerned about. And in a sense, he could clarify his remarks and just kind of move on, but you're right, in making this a sticking point, you know, some people might say, well, why is Wynne bringing the courts into this? But, you know, it was, in a sense, at least plausibly, you know, something along the lines of definition. Do you still need to be driving in this spike, though? I mean, my goodness, the trial is over. He's got the lead. What's the point here? I mean, yeah. you know, take the high road. Go up and be a man and say what you... Like, you know, use your wordsmiths, use your lawyers, use your political whatevers advisors and craft yourself a statement so you look so it's a win-win for everybody i don't know but to like carry this on it just seems i think this is what people are tired of i think this is how you know the donald trump's got and the anti-establishment uh candidates got elected and and you know patrick brown's not in this position he doesn't need this no i I think you're right i think you know when you when you are in the lead and when you are like Patrick Brown, I know he's had controversies, and there are still controversies, like with the, you know, going on and writing associations and, and allegations of favoritism and of trying to silence people. And put those aside, though, because for the most part, those have kind of been inside house things. He is polling quite well. Um, they came out with a platform that was, you know, quite clearly meant to, to appeal to the broad, moderate voter saying that, look, we're going to make some changes. But, you know, it's not going to be the Tim Hudak, I'm going to fire you all variety. Um, so, like, you can feel safe making a vote for us. And I don't think this really fits that narrative, you know, that, that, that he's trying to. Exactly. Play. And, I mean, even yeah. that, even when the platform came out and, you know, it, as we talked about, it, was, it seemed more of a Bill Davis conservative than a Mike Harris conservative. And if that's the mantra you're preaching, this, doesn't, this falls under something Donald Trump would do. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if like you know, I don't know if I want to <laughs> go to go that far to compare. Okay, now maybe really. now maybe yeah. I'm being extreme, no. but that's my no. job. But at the no. end of the day, but, I, I just don't yeah. think he needs this problem. No, I think the only thing you might say, and this goes back to what you kind of mentioned earlier, is the average Ontarian going to care? And I think they, it's not that they don't care about this issue. It's not that they don't care about their politicians being honest and being able to admit when they're wrong. I think they really do. But you know, a lot of times issues like this. Issues like, we've seen it federally, and this is less about scandal, but, you know, Senate reform. These are important issues, but sometimes these are the issues that are, you know, very important within four or five square blocks of Queen's Park and, and not yeah. necessarily super important, yeah. even though the morals underpinning it, are, I think, are very important and indic- indicative of, of leadership potentially and ability to admit when you're wrong, which I think is something any good leader should do. You know, I don't know if this is going to be as important as hydro rates and taxes and yeah. you know wages and um, you know the perception that my kids can have a good future like that's really what's going to matter but but you're right this certainly doesn't help and it's not something that a front runner should be doing uh, so what is the reasoning behind this because this is obviously political strategy so what's the reasoning behind taking this stance and 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 and, and not resolving it is it because every time she mentions the lawsuit it draws attention to the whole trial and everything that happened, and they thought, you know, they think, oh, we want to keep the, you know, the dirt in the news. I mean, is that the reasoning for it? You know, I, I think that's not a, an unreasonable point to make. I think, in a sense, 
Um, it draws attention to the trial yeah. and, and the fact yeah. that she was there. Because, I mean, you're, you're right. I think, you know, and maybe there's a feeling that, that you know, I, we both agree that, you know, uh, uh, you know an apology, maybe, maybe, maybe now it's harder because he already said, I'm not going to apologize. And then if he says, well, I didn't, and now I'm going to, maybe yeah. he dug himself a hole. But, yeah. but I think you're right in saying that, yeah, maybe this doesn't look great on him. But, you know, what we've spoken about earlier is that Patrick Brown uh, and, you know, Andrew Horath as well know that um, what happened in Sudbury, even if it wasn't a crime, doesn't pass the smell test for a good amount of people. And if that's the case, uh, then you can, you know, using his terms, put her on trial, but in the court of public opinion. And maybe you take a, a hit, but as long as she takes a hit a little bit bigger than you do, then I guess that's a win. I mean, I don't know if that's what I would be doing, but I guess, like, as you say, like, if there, if this is, you know, the backroom boys and girls at the at the Conservative Party or Progressive Conservative Party, maybe that's their reasoning. Well, you know, I mean, Christo, we've seen uh, the last two leaders of this party literally shoot themselves in the foot and, and lose elections. Many thought they should have won. Uh, is this one of those strings that's just going to keep unraveling? Because really, what else do they have? I mean, all they have is, is an image of a lead. They're trying to paint an image of Patrick Brown, that he's extreme right, that he's he'll cut this and cut that and da-da-da-da-da. So, I mean, this just plays right into that. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's at least connected. I think in the sense that, you know, I don't know if you could draw a direct line to this, but, but you know, the conservatives about doing politics differently. Yeah. Um, and, you know, Patrick Brown, he, and, you know, people, people don't know a lot about Patrick Brown yet. I mean, they're learning more and more about him. That's a great opportunity for conservatives. That's also a danger. Man. You know, people know Kathleen Wynne. She's the premier. They don't like her. They know her. Good about the people uh, know Andrea Horas and actually quite like Andrea. But they don't really know a lot about Patrick Brown. And I feel that, you know, if this is the image, you know, instead of, you know, the kind of regular guy talked about his personal struggles with speech impediments and what, whatnot, had that commercial, about, you know, like where he was, talking to regular Ontarians, and they're trying to make him look like a, you know, a regular guy, but all of a sudden it looks like he's picking this personal fight with the Premier. Yeah. And I, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know how this is going to work for him, but, you know... I think he, um, honestly, what, I think he should just take the high road. Just take yeah. the high road. You don't need this. The, liber- the record is what it is. I mean, you don't need to throw any more mud at it. You know, no. it, it is what it is. It's been there for 15 years. And yeah. I, I think it would do much, I think it would go a lot farther with his brand if he just took the high road. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And, I, and again, I think, I don't, and I think, you know, by doing that, you could still bring up the trial because, again, the trial, the trial was never about what was happening in that courtroom. It really wasn't. It was about the fact that, that it even went that far and that there's perceptions of it. And it's even a bad idea, in my view, to even bring that up necessarily, because it's not as if the conservatives are having a fully clean process in how they nominate and vet their candidates yep. right now either. Mm-hmm. And it just gives a target on them. So somebody like Andrea Horwath could really, uh, you know, this could shape up to, they're slinging mud at each other, and, you know, liberals are, 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 are seem to be, uh, from a moral perspective, tipping the scales on ridings up north. And Patrick Brown is silencing pro-life people and, 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 and social conservatives in a way to try to, like, appeal to the, the moderates in a way that's, you know, maybe not democratic within the party structures. And, and, and Andrew Horwath can say, well, like, look, if they can't run their parties, how can they run a province? And Patrick Brown's kind of playing into that, whereas, you know, if they just kind of move on from this, then I don't think his internal politics become an issue. 
and what we are what we're at is basically where we are and and he's you know on course to to form a government it looks like you know some polls have him at a majority some polls have him at a minority but he is leading you know as a pretty consensus i would say you know i i think he's in first place right now he doesn't need this uh, and in regard to the other, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure that, that many Ontarians care what goes on within party walls. You know, it's the young eating the young. I mean, you know, at the end of the day, they just want an alternative or a candidate that they, they feel represents them. Are, are, do you think Ontarians are that concerned, whether it's the trial thing in Sudbury or whether it's what's going on with him now? Um, do you think people care how they elect their leaders? It's their own party. Let them do as they wish. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I again, I think it goes back to what we were what we were speaking about. Obviously, within you, the law, yeah. but you know. yeah. If if you if you sat down with people and said, well, you know, here's how the parties say they work. They have these nominations, and then they're supposed to be freely chosen. But then, what happens if somebody from Queens Park comes into a riding and then? tips the scale or doesn't let someone run, not for any kind of scandal, but because of a policy position or something of that sort. And then some people might say, well, that's not right. The party should be democratic. Or some people might say, well, it's their party. They can, they can cry if they want to or whatnot. You know, um, I don't know. I, I do know that you're, you're right in saying that I don't think this is on the minds of most people. Again, in Canada, we, you know, we have high, we, you know, we we don't have a lot of people who are party members. People may identify as, you know, liberals or conservatives or New Democrats. Well, that's it. The majority don't even belong to a political party. Exactly. So, so they might they might even they might be the kind of person whose you know grandfather voted conservative, but at no point in that family's history has anyone actually maybe even signed a card, or yeah. maybe they signed a card because they made a donation, but they've never been to a riding association meeting. And I think in that sense, you know, a lot of this is inside ball. But where it can come, and this could hurt, this could hurt him, is that you know people, you know, have certain moral expectations of their leader, and this doesn't go to things like, you know, your position on pro-choice and pro-life. I mean, that that plays in, but I mean more, in the sense of, you mm-hmm. know, can they admit when they're wrong? How do they handle themselves? Like, do they do they do they seem like a leader to me? This do just makes like, I think people yeah. cynical. I think this just makes people cynical over politics. This stuff. Yeah, I mean, I, it doesn't help. Yeah. It doesn't help. No. Christo Avalis is with the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council, postdoctoral fellow in history at the University of Toronto. Christo, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thanks for having me. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. The Ontario NDP are charging that the Liberals are making hydro customers pay for political advertising uh, on their bills. Yep, uh, they're making hydro customers pay for political advertising right up until the next election, uh, says NDP leader Andrea Horvath. Talk more about all this. Peter Tabins is with us, NDP, MPP, and energy critic, and on the line with us now. Peter, thanks for taking the time to join us. I appreciate this. Scott, it's a pleasure. So tell us what's going on and what we're finding in our bills. Well, what you'll be seeing in your bills is an insert talking about reductions in our hydro bills and noting the words, and this is specified by the government order, the Ontario Fair Hydro Plan, quote, bringing electricity bills down. So first off, let's face it, Scott, this is all liberal messaging and liberal language that we'll be seeing in television advertising and campaign literature next spring when the liberals launch their desperate fight for re-election. But using people's bills, and you pay for your bills, it's part of your hydro cost, um, to get out this message that the liberals are actually reducing your hydro 
expenses is crazy. I mean, first of all, it's partisan advertising. It shouldn't be part of our bills. But the other thing is it's just not telling the truth about what's going on. We're going to be incurring a debt we're going to have to pay off over decades, about $40 billion, uh, to keep our bills low for about three or four years. And then the bills are going to be going up very, very steeply uh, in order to pay for this debt that we've incurred. So making us put out money so liberals can spread their campaign message is adding insult to injury. Uh, and then not telling the truth about what's really going on adds even more insult to that injury. It's an extraordinary thing. But let's face it, uh, the liberals have nothing else but nerve, and they've got a lot of it, and they're putting it on display here with our hydro bills. Uh, and they certainly do have a majority, so uh, not much can be done here. Uh, they seem to be changing the rules of engagement as they go. That being said, is this allowed? Well, it's interesting. Um, legally, they can do it. Uh, a while ago, they changed the legislation regarding government advertising. If you may be aware, the Auditor General yep. was given the power mm-hmm. to rule on whether um, a message from the government was partisan or nonpartisan. And this one's pretty clearly partisan, but her powers, the Auditor General's powers, were cut back very, very sharply uh, by Premier Wynne. And so the ability of the Auditor General to step in and protect us from this kind of thing has been largely gutted. So as far as I know, it's legal. Um, In fact, if you can write the laws, you can make almost anything legal. And that's what they've done here. They've given themselves the ability to get their campaign message out on our dime. Are Ontarians buying the message that, hey, we're lowering your electricity bills uh, 25% by punting the uh, refinance down to the next uh, generation. Are, are, they, are they getting that part of the message, but missing the part of the message? But this was a problem that they created in the first place. It's a self-inflicted wound. Do they honestly think that no. Ontarians are going to hear one part of the message, but not the last part? Well, I think they're hopeful. Uh, but I think it's gone too far, frankly. I think most people understand that they're racking up a huge debt that they're going to be stuck with paying off to make things look good for the Liberals in this election year and for a few more years. So I, I think most people understand that. There may be some who don't, but I think most do know they're being bought off with their own borrowed money. Um, but I also think, and this is pretty fundamental, that people made up their minds about the Liberals and hydro prices a few years ago. I mean, they, they realized that this was a team that was driving up bills to unsustainable heights. And their, their whole drive to privatization has meant all of us pay more. So I, I don't think they're going to be able to escape that. I think that that is pretty deeply ingrained in people's thinking right now. Now, that doesn't mean the liberals aren't going to try and, and confuse people. It doesn't mean they're not going to try and cover. It doesn't mean they aren't going to try and use people's own money to try and confuse them even further. But but they're running up against some pretty big barriers in the way people understand the world right now. Uh, they say uh, hydro customers need simpler bills, not ones that add to their confusion by including the calculation of the savings from the Fair Hydro Plan, uh, says a statement from the utility. Um, and then <laughs> Tebow goes... <laughs> All right, I'll let you deal with that one first before I mention the next one. Go ahead. What's your thoughts? Well, you can make the bills really simple. You don't put in uh, a liberal message 
and you don't say there's a savings from a liberal plan. Yeah. Now, that makes the bill an awful lot simpler, I would say. I mean, what is this junk, putting in this words Ontario Fair Hydro Plan and bringing electricity bills down? People don't need that. They can read their bills. They can look at them. Is the bill going up or bill going down? I think most people can figure that out. They don't need this extra verbiage, this extra text all over their bills. Uh, I don't think this has anything to do with simplifying bills. This has everything to do with getting out the Liberal campaign message. End of story. Period. Stop. Uh, Energy Minister Glenn Tebow, who said on this show, uh, the way this all works, uh, the more you consume, the more energy you save, or sorry, the more money you save. Uh, He said, quote, it's trying to make sure that people understand clearly what their bills are about, Tebow said. Sometimes we treat people like they're energy experts rather than just trying to understand their bill. Uh, wow, is is he patting us on the head? And is, <laughs> is he making? You're very generous, Scott. <laughs> I, I'm impressed. You are a very generous and kind man. Yeah, he's treating us like fools. Uh, he he's got a cover for this. They're looking for just about anything that they can put their hands on to make them look better. But in the end, you can't take money from people. You can't make people's standard of living lower and cover it up with some cute words. You can try, and they will, and they're going to spend a lot of our money to do that, um, $40 billion worth. But I don't think they're going to succeed. Uh, obviously, Andrea Horvath and uh, the NDP, uh, you guys want to buy it back. Do you think that's resonating, uh, meaning Hydro One? Do you think that's resonating with Ontarians? Well, what I, I find does resonate is the idea that our hydro system should be public, not private. And I don't think people are that fussed about the details. Uh, they do understand Well, that, they might be uh, if it costs them more money. Yeah, but... Because, again, you got to buy this back now, and, you know, they've you gone do, up. But, you know, Hydro One is a, a money-making entity. I mean, we're still um, getting part of the profits, around 300, 300 million, maybe 400 million a year. Uh, it makes somewhere in the 800 to 900 million dollars a year range. Uh, buying it back means taking those profits and using them to pay for the repurchase. That gives us protection against the kind of stupidity that we've seen where um, you've got Hydro One coming into the uh, regulator, the energy board, uh, asking for an increase because they've got worn out transformers, getting the increase, and coming back a year later and asking for an increase based on those transformers that they never replaced. I mean, we really need to have control of this system if we're going to have any chance at keeping these bills in line. And I think a lot of people understand it needs to be in public hands if we're going to have any sort of chance. What about the green energy? Bills. What about the green energy act? What about expanding renewables? All that sort of thing. Uh, Wynn will say that that's the reason we are where we are. Well, yeah, but I don't think she's she's credible on that. I mean, uh, green energy is about fifteen percent of people's bills in total, and bills have gone up over a hundred percent now since two thousand and six. I think it is so. If you had no green energy, you'd still have bills going up 85%. Uh, this is privatization. What we, about the uh, global adjustment? What about, you know, uh, pay, overpaying for power and such? It's all of a package. It's all, you know, you can't just take one piece out and say that that's the problem. The global adjustment is the guaranteed price that's paid to yeah. nuclear generators, gas generators, renewable generators. Um, frankly, if you called it something else tomorrow the price would still be there and the legal obligation to pay would be there. Yeah. Until we actually 
control the system again ourselves and don't have private companies setting the rules and, and driving the agenda at Queen's Park, people are going to have bills they can't afford. Peter Tabins has been with us, NDP, MPP, and energy critic. Peter, thanks for the time as always. Much appreciated. Thanks, Scott. Take care. Bye-bye. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. The jury in the Laura Babcock trial has started deliberations. Uh, what were they told and not told? To talk more about all of this, Alex Pearson, host of On Point with Alex Pearson, heard, of course, evenings right here on 900 CHML, of course, longtime journalist, uh, journalist and covered the Bosma trial for us uh, during the height of all of that. She's here now. Alex, thanks for taking the time to join us. Great to uh, hear from you. And the new show sounds great. Congratulations. Awesome. Thanks. I'm so happy I can uh, join you because... You know, and Bill would know, I mean, when I was covering that trial in Hamilton, there was so much I could not say, and now we know why. Because there was publication bans right, left, and center on both of these trials. And the interesting point, too, was, you know, as soon as this second trial started, as soon as the Laura Babcock trial started, uh, immediately my reaction is, well, let's go to Alex for her take on this. (laughs) And, of course, we couldn't touch any of that. We couldn't touch any of it. Like, it was... It was so painful because we had so much, like I had seen all of this evidence Mm -hmm. through arguments in the Bosma trial and through information through just talking to sources and that. We knew all this information. We could not report any of it. So it was, um, it was very difficult. It was very technical, but you know, in the end, the jury came back, even though it took a long, long time for them to deliberate, they came back and you know, they delivered the right verdict and uh, did their jobs. And I expect this jury will do the same. All right, so uh, explain to those uh, who may not know why we can talk about it now, why we couldn't talk about it before, Well, meaning the Bosma first, case. Yeah, so the Bosma and the Laura Babcock case had so much overlapping in them. And so to, to tell this jury that there was a conviction and that these two were uh, convicted of first-degree murder would have made it so that it was prejudicial. So right away, you can't stack that kind of information um, against the accused if, in fact, you want to have a fair trial. And I know a lot of people, uh, you know, hate the accused and, and, you know, have at her. But we do have a process in this country and you have to follow it. And, you know, there there wasn't a publication ban on the Wayne Millard um, issue. We we could not talk about that. So there was a publication ban in the fact that we couldn't mention it. But that one is treated completely differently because only Della Millard is charged in that case. But when it came to the joint charge and the fact that the trials really overlapped, they had to put a bunch of sweeping publication bans in to just make sure that these two guys got a fair trial. So why can we talk about it now? Well, because these two trials are essentially over. And because right. the jury now in the second trial has gone into, um, you know, closed doors. So, so they're in lockdown. what we're talking about. Yeah. I mean, it's really hard in this day and age of technology and yeah. social media and all the rest of it to think that none of them know any of this. It really comes down to a trust factor. But if there's anything like what we saw in the Bosma trial, um, you know, they've done their job. They know the seriousness. You know, they would have seen the emotion of the Babcock family. Um, they, they will do their job. The question is, how long will it take them to do their job? And I, I could be wrong. But I do feel very confident they'll come back with the right uh, verdict. How do you find jurors that have not heard of these cases? It's 
Well, like would they would they have not. would they have any well, knowledge of the Bosma case or or what happened some prior? Did. Some of them did. Some of them had knowledge of it, but said that they could could put it aside. Look, I just got called for jury duty. Believe it or not, I have to fill out the paperwork and I'll wait for my day to get called down and they'll have to decide, even though they know I'm a reporter and someone who's done court, they will have to decide whether or not someone like me could be a good juror. I'm They're not going to let you be. They wouldn't let you be well, a juror, would they? I, I don't think any lawyer would want to pick me because if I were on this trial, it would take me 20 seconds. I'd go yeah. out the door, come back and say, guilty. <laughs> um, but again, you have to be able to uh, to really turn yourself off and be very, very um, open-minded, and and it, it and it gets harder and harder these days because it's virtually impossible not to know anything about you know especially high-profile news like this. It would be very difficult. But so that some people didn't. Know. So that being said, there would have been jurors on the members on this jury that did know about the case, but obviously during the actual case, none of this can be presented, none of this can be uh, emphasized in any way. But they still might have prior knowledge of what happened. They may have known that there was right. a, uh, that that Dellen Millard or something that there was a trial. They may not have known the details of it. Um, but don't forget any evidence having to do with Laura Babcock was never presented in the Bosman right. trial. Therefore, they would never have had access to that information. And so essentially, and, and what I mean makes most people mad about is hearing that the jury had no idea that Tim Bosma was killed 10 months after Laura Babcock went missing. Mm. And, and, it, and it is simply because it would be too prejudicial. There's just no yeah. one who can ever go into a trial and right. keep an open mind without coming back uh, again. So w- what about the parallels to these cases, these two cases, even though they couldn't overlap in any way? How, how similar are they? Uh, well, to me, I mean, Laura Babcock, to me, was always kind of the forgotten one. You know, she kind of just went missing. No one ever really looked for her. The police were slow in getting on this. They took a long time to put the pieces together. It really wasn't until Tim Bosma went missing and there was an immediate urgency to find him. The police knew instinctually that something bad had happened. And it wasn't until Tim Bosma, that case blew open, that the police opened it up and went, okay, we've got some connections here. Wayne Millard died suspiciously. I don't think it's a suicide. Let's reopen that case. And then, of course, with Laura Babcock, there were connections between the two. So then they reopened that investigation, and it brings us to where we are now. As far as what makes them similar, to me, uh, Laura Babcock was always the, the experiment, the starting point for them. Because at that time, don't forget... Dellen Millard at this point in his life is drunk on power. He's got lots of money. He's got Mark Smith and his cast of losers hanging off his every word, taking all his money, enjoying the good life, stealing, and, and really living a life going nowhere. And it, they seem to be escalating over the years from theft and all these things that they were doing, a lot of drugs, a lot of partying, yeah. starting to buy guns. And so then all of a sudden it's like Laura Babcock becomes a nuisance. And as we saw in the text between Christina Nubta and Millard, you know, she's saying, well, I, I don't like her, all the rest of it. And he said, well, I'll get rid of her. So it's almost like Laura Babcock was the, cat, the, the, the catalyst, the starting point of this life of thrill killing. So mm. she's gone and, you know, it kind of just escalated from there. Now, of course, he's not had a trial um, for his father's death of Wayne Millard. So we don't know. It's still just an allegation. But... Um, there was an escalation in the brazenness to their violence right. and, and uh, you know, to their egos. Uh, as a result of the order of all of this, uh, more evidence for the Bosma case than there was for the Babcock case. Yes. Does that change mm-hmm. or could that change the outcome? Because there just isn't the, um, the evidence that there was for, for the Bosma case. 
Well, okay, but a lot of people just assume because it's a circumstantial case that there's not strong evidence. That's just simply not true. As yeah. we've seen in both of these cases, yeah, you don't need you don't a huge role. Yeah, you huge. don't need a body. Yeah, you don't necessarily need a body. I mean, unless this jury actually believes Della Millard's closing argument that you know she's not dead. Um, which I highly suspect that they won't buy because he has zero credibility. You just need to look at motive and uh, really what's in front of them. And those texts are very damning. Hmm. Those jailhouse yeah, letters written yeah. to Nuka are very, very damning. Placing them near to where uh, Laura Babcock was. We know that she had been with them in those days around her disappearance. There's a lot of very compelling evidence. Um, that I think that, that I think there's more than enough evidence to convict here, even though there's no body. What about the fact that he did represent himself? Uh, when you yeah. heard that, obviously you sat there in the courtroom. You know what this guy's like. Uh, what both yeah. of them are like. Uh, you know, you weren't the second time. But that being said, uh, what are your thoughts of him representing himself? Well, he did. I mean, he had a choice. He could have gotten legal aid. Don't forget, in the first trial, Della Millard still had access to his estate, which his mother was babysitting, but doling out cash to him. Um, it wasn't until that conviction came forward that then a judge sealed the estate and said, hold on a second here. We can't have someone dipping into an estate when he is accused of killing the man that that estate belonged to. So that money was then frozen until the outcome of that third trial. Hmm. So he would have had access to legal aid, but he didn't want it. And he didn't want it because he's a narcissist. And that is Dylan Millard. He plays this, oh, woe is me, I'm so smart, and everyone takes advantage of me, and I know better. It's BS. He is maniacal, he's a psychopath, and he's a narcissist. He loves he loves getting up and Well, what about just the fact that Smitch has a lawyer and he doesn't? I mean, come yeah, on. Well, but Smitch's lawyer is the same guy, Dungey, uh, yeah. who, who is a great lawyer, legal aid lawyer, that he had in the first. So obviously they had a relationship of trust. But again, in this trial, it's interesting because Smitch barely said a word. He really, really came off as a shadow. And of course, Millard didn't call him to testify, knowing full well what, what Smitch would have, would have uh, said. And it would yeah. have been an absolute gong show. Mm-hmm. But yes, yeah, Smitch remained with the same lawyer. Dungey put on the best show that he could. Um, and, and he probably hopes that he'll get, a, a, you know, either an acquittal or something lesser like manslaughter. Because don't forget, both of these men are still appealing. Uh, their first-degree murder conviction. Wow. Um, yeah, what a tangled web here. It is a totally tangled web. Uh, and what about, tur- what about turning on yeah. each other? What about turning on each other? I mean... Uh, well, so- they did essentially in the Bosma trial. Don't forget. But why not as much in this one? It, did, it didn't seem as what? much in this one, though. Not really, because it would have been very risky for, for, for Millard to call on him or for the Crown to call on him, because they, the Crown, which attended a lot of the Bosma trial, they already knew what he was going to say. They already knew that he was a bona fide liar. Um, and so what were they going to get out of him other than five days of, I don't remember, I don't know, I have no idea, I was scared, Del Millard scared me, that kind of nonsense. And so what's in it for, you know, Del Millard? I think both Smitch and certainly Del Millard are hoping or are naively hoping, is that that the fact that there's no body and the fact that they may have suggested she disappeared and is out there sitting on the sidelines, apparently, according to Millard, sitting on the sidelines letting two innocent men go down for a death that just doesn't exist. It's ludicrous. Ludicrous.
Uh, what about the fact he had shackles on his feet uh, and those yep. were hidden from view uh, from the jury? Would they know that he was shackled, uh, just no. didn't make it obvious, or would they have no idea that he was shackled? No, and they wouldn't have known in Bosma. So when, when the two accused were brought into the Bosma trial as well, they were in plain clothes. They were in their own clothing. And any kind of uh, handcuffs or anything like that were taken off. And they weren't even put into the prisoner dock. They just sat at a regular desk as a regular person would. Um, and so the same treatment would have been given to them in this case. But because Della Millard had to stand up, um, they had to cover and put this black sheeting over uh, the feet and the legs of, of the accused because they're now convicted. They would have to wear those shackles. Um, and so that's so why, why uh, so that. why would they want not want the jury to see that? Because it's prejudicial. If- because but, when you see someone yeah. um, wearing an orange jumpsuit or right. looking like they're guilty, it right. does tend to sway how you will judge someone. One of the big so why not just take the shack- So why well, not just shake? Why not just take the shackles off? Well, I think it comes down to uh, security, a concern out of safety, yeah. security. Mm-hmm. Like if these guys have nothing left to lose, they feel like they're going to lose the case. Right. Who's to suggest that they may not strike out at somebody? Yeah. I mean, you just don't know. I mean, Dylan Millard yeah. was walking around the court in front of, or not walking around, but was in front of the jury, and he mm-hmm. he, he could have then possibly pulled a stunt. Yeah. What will happen with the third trial regarding his father? What will be allowed in that? Will the same sort of bans on both these trials? Uh... No. Well, no, because everything's out there now. So, look, there, there will be some procedural um, arguments of stuff that can't get in. There'll be pretrial motions put forward. This evidence can get in. This evidence can't get in. Um, but it'll be interesting to see what, what he does with this. If he goes down on first-degree murder on this one, you know, is he going to fight it? Likely, yes, because he has nothing better to do. Would he plead out to his father's case? Not until he has the appeals in both of these cases uh, rectified, because if he thinks for a second he can get out and be free again, he's going to take that. Yeah. Um, you know, but it, but it's it's been a fascinating case. It plays much differently in Toronto than it does in Hamilton. It kind of, I think it plays much bigger in the surrounding areas around Hamilton and, and than it does in, in Toronto because there's not that emotional connection right, right. that we had with the Bosma family. And that's mm. unfortunate because for Laura Babcock's parents, yeah. they've literally just been kind of uh, left in a world of like, like they don't, they don't exist. And yeah. it's interesting because the Bosma family you know, as they are just gracious and giving and loving and kind, they did want to come in at one point to show some support for the family, mm. but um, they weren't allowed to because it would have been, mm. you know, the judge Makes thought sense. it would have been maybe yep. a risk and cause a scene. What about a mistrial? I mean, obviously, uh, you have to think that was that that, that was on uh, Dallin Millard's uh, mind. Um, did he get given any opportunity? Is there a loose thread in this somewhere? Uh, the judge in this case was extremely cautious. I mean, his charge alone was 300 pages. I yeah. mean, good God, they're painful at the best of times. That is, like, he, he took extraordinary, extraordinary, went to extraordinary lengths to protect the integrity of his trial. So if there was ever a moment, like when we saw the testimony again of the uncle, who, as we saw in Hamilton, just despised Della Millard, the, the judge shut it down quickly made sure that the jury was protected from seeing anything that might have swayed them one way or another. But again, at the end of the trial, the Crown tried again to get in the evidence about the incinerator, the eliminator, because as we know, the jury was shown the two bones that were found, but it wasn't really explained to them, like, who did they belong to? It wasn't Laura Babcock, but they didn't know it was Tim Bosma. 
So the Crown at the very end of the trial before the jury went out wanted to present the evidence of the eliminator to show this wasn't some animal, you know, incinerator. This was for getting rid of human beings. They wanted the jury to be clear that this was very systematic, very planned, very orchestrated, and that these guys didn't just goof up. They calculatedly, they tried to destroy lives Mm. and didn't give a second thought to it. The question now is, where does Christina Nuga end up? Because she she didn't testify, and she was a big name in the first trial, but she didn't testify in this one. So what are your thoughts on that? What, what do you mean well, moving forward? She's in Poland now, apparently. She got a one-way ticket out. Remember, she pleaded out to a lesser charge of obstruct justice right, right after her testimony, which is absolute garbage, if you ask me, because... I liken her to a Carla Homolka type in the sense that she used her sexuality. She played the innocent, you know, I'm just a smart girl. I was just doing my thing. But she was very manipulative. And we know she didn't tell the truth for one second when she testified. And that's likely why she wasn't called to testify again. It's like, what would the Crown get out of her? But she, as I understand, once she pleaded out to the obstruct justice, got her one day in jail, she took off uh, to Poland to, I guess, get into the medical profession, she, a psychology, which is ironic mm. in every sense of the word. Wow. Uh, yeah. What about the length of time uh, that th- this jury has been deliberating so far? I mean, we, we've talked before about this. I- is there any way to predict this? What does it say to you that we are in, what, two days now? Oh, no. We're not even a full day. So they came back with a question uh, earlier today, noon, and they asked for the, uh, the closing arguments. And so they obviously want to go and listen to those closing arguments again, um, which either tells you one thing, one of two things. They're either really close and they just want to listen to it again, or they're working backwards. That's my, my prediction is that they're working backwards, and they want to go through what each of them said and then go up that decision tree that the judge put in front of them to say, okay, here's where we're at for, for manslaughter, here's what we're at for second degree, and, and upwards to get to that first degree. I don't ever predict when a jury will come back. When it came to Bosma, look, it would have taken me less than 10 seconds to come back, and that's only because I would have had to open the door um, to come back with first degree. But... <laughs> you know that these juries can go one hour or six or seven days. So it would not surprise me in the least if they put in uh, a really good effort. But keep in mind, it is Christmas. They are tired. They've got parties to plan, kids to get gifts for. That will also play because they're stuck in a hotel. Mm. And their lives are on hold while they do this. Uh, Because there's an appeal in the first case, uh, the Bosman case, do we just expect one here? Well, it's, it's automatic with first degree yeah. if that conviction comes down. So, look, there is nothing, nothing. And I know uh, one of the, the newer appellate judges at the, uh, at the court is a tough guy. I just don't see them ever getting uh, an appeal. I just don't. The, the crowns in both of these cases were very, very careful. The judges took extreme uh, caution because this is a historic case in, in many ways. And it will go down in the history books, not just as a thrill kill, but... If Della Millard and, and Mark Smith, if Della Millard's convicted of this trial and the next is in his father's, he will be known as a serial killer. We don't mm. have many of those in this country. So it is a big trial. It will be remembered. And again, when have we ever seen someone represent themselves and like, you Bizarre. know, question the father of yeah. this dead yeah. woman, his child? I mean, yeah. we just don't see that kind of thing of a convicted felon, you know, questioning and playing lawyer. Alex Pearson is with us, host of On Point with Alex Pearson. You can hear tonight on CHML, uh, of course, talking about the jury deliberating in the Laura Babcock murder trial. Alex, thanks for the time, as always. Much appreciated. My pleasure. We'll keep it covered. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.